welcome to City Breaks Edinburgh, Episode 3. I'm Marion Jones. Falcha. That's the Scots Gaelic version of Welcome. And welcome indeed to anyone who's rejoining me from last week's episode, the exciting story of Edinburgh Castle. I didn't think I was going to be able to top that, but actually, when you hear all the things that have happened at Holyrood, I think you'll agree it's at least up there. And a special welcome if you're new to City Breaks just happened along to see what it's like. I hope you'll enjoy what you're going to hear and decide to stick with us. So, Holyrood. Quite a confusing word in an Edinburgh context, unless you know the city well, because it's a palace, it's an abbey, and it's the Scottish Parliament. But in today's episode, I'm going to focus on the first two, the abbey, which came first, and the palace, and leave the long and convoluted story of parliaments in Scotland and how it ended up with the current one at Holyrood for a future episode. Okay, so, so much of the history of Scotland and the history of Edinburgh is bound up with the Abbey and the Palace of Holyrood, that there's lots to say. Let me start with a guidebook, which says this. Holyrood is a house of many memories. Wars have been plotted, dancing has lasted deep into the night, murder has been done in its chamber. That gives, I think, a good picture of the very mixed feast of goodies which awaits us. It's a story very much of Scottish history and culture, of course, and of Scottish royalty, but it's also very much a story of today's UK royalty. Both Her Majesty the Queen and Prince Charles are there every year, and it's where many of the things we connect with royalty, investitures, garden parties, that sort of thing, take place in a Scottish context. So, the beginning. Well, the palace was begun in 1498, but that's not the beginning of the story, because the palace was built next door to the abbey, which was built some 350 years earlier than that. It's a story, part history, part legend, which began in 1128, with the Scottish king David I, who was inspired to build the abbey after a dream. And actually, before the dream, came a day out hunting. And this is a story nicely retold by Michael Fry in his book, Edinburgh, A History of the City. So we're in September 1128. It's a lovely fine day and King David leaves the castle to go hunting in the forests. There are actually several versions of this story, but this is the one which Michael Fry relates. Quote, the chase somehow separated him from his retainers and he found himself near the foot of Salisbury Crags. A giant white stag maddened by the pursuit, turned at bay and attacked him. He defended himself with his sword, but things were not looking good. All of a sudden, there appeared above him a cloud with a silver lining, whence a hand emerged and handed over a sparkling cross. The king waved it at the stag, which ran away and was killed afterwards. He felt impressed, but had no idea what to make of it all, until that night when St Andrew appeared to him in a dream the saint commanded the king to build a monastery on the spot where his life had been saved and to dedicate it to the Holy Rood. So a rood is a cross, the Holy Rood then makes sense and that's where Holyrood comes from. King David did indeed found the abbey. He peopled it with Augustinian monks and they dedicated it to the true cross of Christ. A crest was developed, depicting a stag with a Christian cross between its antlers, and a motto, in Latin of course, Tutum te robore redam, which means, I will give you safety 
by strength. And that's where began the centuries of religious worship and royal ceremony which took place in the Abbey at Holyrood. It was damaged several times, I'll come to that later. It's all part of the long history of religious conflict in Edinburgh, and it was finally ruined in 1768 when there was a massive storm and the building lost its roof, which was never replaced. I can't resist a little digression here because in the paragraph after the story of the hunting episode, Michael Fry goes on to relate how it is that St Andrew became the patron saint of Scotland, and indeed how the town of St Andrews got its name. And it's all to do with the relics of St Andrew, who of course was one of the twelve disciples. The story, says Michael Fry, begins at about the same time as King David was reigning, perhaps a little later, and it goes like this. Quote, the relics had been kept in Constantinople until a Greek monk, St Regulus, was told by an angel to take them to the end of the earth. The monk set off and decided that he had reached the end of the earth when he got to Fife. Can I intercede and say I do hope Michael Fry is Scottish because I don't think you could say that if you were English. Anyway, Michael Fry goes on. Shipwreck cast him ashore at the Pictish settlement of Silremin, promptly renamed St Andrews in honour of the precious cargo he had brought with him. Anyway, back to the main plot. So, the Abbey's there, and in 1498 it was decided to build a palace, Holyrood House, next door. The Abbey was now popular, lots of visitors were arriving, royalty used the Abbey for various ceremonies, even though up until then they lived at the castle, rather than down at this end of the Royal Mile. Royal connections included James II, who reigned in the 15th century, who was born, crowned, married and buried here in the Abbey of Holyrood. The coronation was particularly unusual because all the previous Scottish kings had been crowned at Scone. James III was married here at the Abbey, but it's his son James IV with whom the Abbey is most connected. His story is romantic and tragic in equal parts, really, but the romantic part comes first, particularly five years after the palace was begun, when his wedding to Margaret Tudor, Princess Margaret, the 14-year-old sister of the future Henry VIII, took place here in the Abbey. And what an event it was. So much was riding on it. It was hoped that it would cement the peace between England and Scotland, be a union of the thistle and the rose, and put an end to wars between the two countries. Most of Edinburgh came out on August 7th, 1503, to see Margaret riding pillion behind the king, making their state entry into Edinburgh, both of them dressed in cloth of gold, trimmed with black velvet. There was cheering, there were bells. They were escorted by two hundred knights, and celebratory pageants were performed along the route. The next morning, the wedding, which everyone hoped was going to be the union of the thistle and the rose, was celebrated in the chapel of Holyrood House. Splendidly attired, Margaret wore a robe trimmed and lined with crimson velvet, a gold collar, pearls around her neck, and a crown on her head. The king, who was thirty, dressed in a gown of white damask, sleeves of crimson satin, a doublet of cloth of gold, and a pair of scarlet hose. His shirt, we are told, was embroidered with thread of gold. So, after this splendid ceremony, came an even more splendid feast at which some fifty dishes were served, roast crane, roast swan. There was dancing, 
celebratory bonfires were lit all over Edinburgh and everyone was very hopeful about the future. Over the next ten years, Margaret bore six children to James, but only one of them survived, the future James V, who, sadly, at only 17 months, became king because his father was killed at the Battle of Flodden, fighting, yes, I'm afraid, the English. Poor Margaret at this point was only 23. She did remarry. I think, in fact, she remarried twice. But she has her place in history, certainly, for her granddaughter was Mary, Queen of Scots, and her great-grandson was James VI of Scotland, who ruled also as James I of England, an event which united the two crowns in a way which the wedding had been unable to do. James V had built the tower now known as James's Tower, which is in fact the oldest surviving part of the palace today. He too was beset by tragedy. A French bride was chosen for him, Madeleine de Valois. Actually, she wasn't chosen. A different relative was chosen, but it was with Madeleine that James fell in love, and she and he persuaded her father, François Ier, so Francis I, to allow the marriage to go ahead. They were wed in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris on New Year's Day in 1537. Four months of festivities in France followed, partly as a celebration and partly because Madeleine's health had always been poor and it was feared that arriving in a Scottish winter would do her no good at all. So their departure was delayed until the spring. They left France in a fleet of ten ships, arriving in Leith in May 1537. The Scots were charmed to see that as she arrived in her husband's kingdom, Madeleine knelt down and kissed the earth. James was very excited too, He'd had improvements made to the palace for their arrival. A coronation was being planned. But, tragically, only 40 days after she arrived in Scotland, she died. It's thought of TB. She was still 16. She was buried in the Royal Chapel of Holyrood Abbey. James remarried another French bride, actually, Mary of Guise, the mother of Mary, Queen of Scots. But when he died, James was buried next to the lady who had become known as his Summer Queen there in the Abbey at Holyrood. And all of that brings us to the member of the Scottish royal family most associated with Holyrood, and that is, of course, Mary Queen of Scots. It says in the guidebook, quote, Many of the dramatic events of Mary's short reign took place in the Abbey or Palace of Holyrood. Somewhat of an understatement. And the first big drama began when she was a tiny baby. Henry VIII decided that perhaps the way to unite England and Scotland was to have an agreement made that when Mary grew up, she would marry his own son, Edward. The Scots' dislike of this idea led, as I think I mentioned in a previous episode, to Henry's taking revenge, the rough wooing as it was known, when he sent troops to Edinburgh with instructions to do as much damage as possible, including to, quote, burn the palace of Holyrood House. This, I'm afraid, was duly done although James's tower, as just mentioned, did survive. In order to protect the baby Mary, she was spirited away to France, and it looked for some twenty years as if that is where her place would be, for she married the Dauphin, so son of the King of France, and it was only after his unexpected death in 1560 that she returned to Scotland, and made her home in what became known as the Queen's Apartments, in the tower built by her father, known today as James's Tower. Key events of her life all happened here in the palace. It was in the chapel that she married Lord Henry Darnley, and it was in her chamber that she conducted her arguments with the firebrand Protestant preacher, John Knox. 
said to have put her in, quote, a vehement fume. I'll be telling more of that story in a later episode, but just to give you an idea, here's one exchange which they had on one of the four occasions when we know that Mary summoned him to Holyrood. She's decided to tell him that although she's been very patient and listened to his arguments, she is now furious that he won't stop haranguing her. Here's how she put it. I have borne with you in all your rigorous manner of speaking. I have offered you presence and audience, whensoever it pleased you to admonish me, and yet I cannot be quit of you. I vow to God I shall be revenged. Well, if you think that's strongly put, and that he would have gone away meekly, you'd be wrong, because I'm afraid he did what can only be described as a calm-down dear speech, in which he pointed out that she was wrong, meaning wrong to follow the doctrines of Catholicism, and that she would eventually see reason. This is what he said. When it shall please God to deliver you from that bondage of darkness and error in the which you have been nourished for the lack of true doctrine, your majesty will find the liberty of my tongue nothing offensive. How patronising is that? Another major drama of Mary's time at the palace was the murder of her secretary and court musician, David Rizzio. Mary's marriage to Darnley had been beset with problems pretty much from the beginning. He was jealous principally of her power, but also of her secretary, who was a close confidant of his wife, part of her inner circle, until the dreadful night when, while eating supper with Mary and her ladies, in her private rooms, what can only be described as a group of henchmen arrived to murder him. I don't think Darnley himself was there, but his knife was used and it's certainly thought that he was behind it all. I read an account of this incident by Antonia Fraser in her biography of Mary Queen of Scots, and she tells us that when the men charged up the stairs and into Mary's private rooms, and she demanded to know why they had come, one of them, Ruthven, answered as follows, Let it please your majesty that yonder man David come forth of your privy chamber, where he hath been over long. Rizzio, he said, had offended against the Queen's honour, and here is Antonia Fraser herself explaining what happened next. Quote, While Rizzio clung to the Queen's skirts, Kerr and Bellenden produced pistols, and others wielded daggers. Finally, the fingers of the little Italian were wrenched out of the Queen's skirts, and he was dragged, screaming and kicking, out of the supper room, across the bedroom, through the presence chamber, to the head of the stairs. His pathetic voice could be heard calling as he went, Justitia, Justitia, that's the Italian for justice. And then he went into French, presumably the language that, in which he talked to Mary, Sauvez ma vie, madame, save my life, he said, Sauvez ma vie. Here he was done to death by dagger wounds, variously estimated at between 53 and 60, a savage butchery for a small body. And when you go and visit today, you can go up the privy staircase, see all the rooms in which this happened, and find a plaque on the wall at the very spot where it's believed that Rizzio lost his life. Much more drama to come. Only three months after that, Mary gave birth to her son, the future James VI. You might remember the story from the previous episode about Darnley remonstrating that he didn't think he was the father. But not long after that, Darnley himself was murdered. That is to say, he died suddenly in very mysterious circumstances. He'd been unwell and he'd gone to recover at a building called Hamilton House, a little way from the palace. 
overlooking an area known as Kirker Field. In the middle of the night, a huge bang was heard, woke up most of Edinburgh apparently, and it was soon discovered that a bomb had been planted in Hamilton House. But the plot thickens. Darnley was nowhere to be seen, and eventually his body was found not in the house, as you would expect, but in the garden, along with the body of one of his servants. As Antonia Fraser writes, the king was still in his nightgown and naked beneath it. Beside him was a furred cloak, a chair, a dagger and some rope. There was no mark or mutilation on either body and no sign of the work of the blast. The king and his servant had been strangled. I don't think this full story of what happened has ever been totally agreed by historians. Antonia Fraser's explanation, though, does ring very true. She surmises that Darnley had been awoken in the night by perhaps a noise, that he'd looked out of the window, seen men he knew to be his rivals in the garden, and decided he'd better escape. The chair and the rope would indicate how he got out of the house and into the garden, where, presumably, he met his murderers. Chief suspect there is the Earl of Bothwell, with whom Mary had been very close, and whom she went on to marry soon after this event. It was the beginning of the end. Quarrels with the nobility led to her being imprisoned and forced to abdicate, to flee to England and to be replaced on the Scottish throne by her baby son, James, who reigned for well over 30 years until 1603, when, following the death of Queen Elizabeth, he became King of England too and left the court for London. He promised to return often, but in fact it was another 14 years until he reappeared. But in 1633 there was a Scottish coronation for his son, Charles I, held at the Abbey. Charles had spent the previous night at Edinburgh Castle and there had been a magnificent procession all down the Royal Mile, from the castle to Holyrood House, his lords being, quote, richly clad in scarlet-furred robes. After the coronation he stayed on in Edinburgh, attended Parliament, another excuse for an extravagant procession, when an eyewitness tells us that the king himself was, quote, clad in purple velvet, richly furred and laced with gold hanging over his horse-tail. The lion heralds, pursuivants, maces and trumpeters followed his majesty in silence. Quite the spectacle then. But less than twenty years after that, there was civil war, and Holyrood Palace found a new use. Cromwell's troops settled down into it and used it as a barracks. Holyrood did become a royal palace again in 1660 after the Restoration, a place for the Scottish Privy Council to meet, and under Charles II, a major programme of rebuilding and restoration, all designed to show that royalty was back. It was at this point that new state apartments were built, the Great Gallery was built running the length of the building, and it was filled with, wait for it, 111 portraits of Scottish monarchs, whom I have seen described actually as real and legendary. And the guidebook explains why it was that Charles II commissioned a painter to produce them all. It was strategic. Quote, These portraits not only preserved the likeness of recent Stuarts, but also reasserted the Stuart succession to the throne. Another big drama in the 1680s, the Glorious Revolution, when the Catholic King, James II, fled London and was replaced by the Protestant William and Mary. This was immediately an excuse for an anti-Catholic mob to attack Holyrood Chapel, to overpower the hundred or more men who tried to defend it, and to cause terrible damage. 
Here's a description taken from Memorials of Edinburgh in the Olden Time, written by Sir Daniel Wilson. Quote, the magnificent carved stalls, which had just been completed, and all the costly fittings of the chapel, were reduced to an unsightly heap of ruins. He goes on to explain that having done all this damage, they marched in what he called triumphal procession up the Royal Mile to the Mercat Cross, where they reinforced their point by burning an effigy of the Pope. No wonder then that in the fifty years or so after that, there were Jacobite rebellions, Catholics who wanted to see a Catholic king back on the throne. The key year being 1745 and the arrival of Bonnie Prince Charlie, grandson of James II, the Catholic king who'd been replaced by William and Mary, who arrived from Europe back in Scotland and marched down to Edinburgh collecting troops on the way. Ultimately he failed, and there were those who thought they could see this coming. One description of him, written at the time of his arrival back in Edinburgh, reads like this. The air of his countenance was languid and melancholy. He looked like a gentleman and a man of fashion, but not like a hero or a conqueror. Ouch. But he settled into Holyrood, he conducted his official business there, he made sure to, as the guidebook puts it, lunch in public view, so that everyone would know a Scottish king was back, he held balls in the Great Gallery, and then, having made his mark, he left to march to England, where, en route, he was defeated at Culloden and fled back to Europe. Soldiers from the castle who were loyal to the Hanoverians on the throne in England took this opportunity to arrive at Holyrood and destroy anything they could find with a connection to Bonnie Prince Charlie. After that came a period described in the guidebook as a period when Holyrood acquired an air of neglect. Although by the end of the 18th century, when romanticism was all the thing, people took a new interest in the romantic ruins of the Abbey and in the story of Mary Queen of Scots. In 1822, the King George IV arrived in Edinburgh, becoming the first reigning monarch to visit Scotland for 200 years. He was largely enthusiastically received, and this marked a turning point in the history of the palace. As the guidebook puts it, quote, George I received a rapturous welcome when he arrived in Edinburgh, and he entered the palace as King of Scotland in a spectacular and symbolic ceremony. The first levée, or reception, was held at the palace two days later when he was introduced to 1,200 gentlemen, many of whom had queued for hours. He received guests in the drawing room or throne room, clad in full Highland dress, and later in the week held a reception at the palace for over 400 ladies. Queen Victoria, the next monarch but one, was also very fond of Scotland. She loved Balmoral particularly, and Edinburgh was a convenient stopping-off point for her when she was off there and this had the effect of making Holyrood gradually into a much-loved royal residence. She herself said that she was, quote, much struck with the beauty of the edifice. She took to wearing tartan dresses when she was in town, and many people liked that. In the 20th century, I think all the kings came to stay, Edward VII, George V, and George VI, the latter bringing his family, i.e. two daughters, one of whom was, of course, our present queen, Elizabeth. And so gradually, gradually, Holyrood became the Sovereign's official residence in Scotland. State banquets are held here if the Queen's in Scotland. She hosted the Pope, for example, at Holyrood. And at the same time, it's a family residence for the royal family. So that's then my summary of the long and chequered history. 
I'd like to just finish the episode by talking a little bit about what there is to see when you go and visit. It's not massive, massive, but even so, if I went through everything, we'd all get lost in the detail. So I'm going to start by mentioning what I think is most people's favourite part to visit. Certainly it was mine, and that's the privy staircase and the rooms associated with Mary, Queen of Scots, her chamber, bedchamber and supper room. It's not actually just now in the 21st century that these are popular. You could say that tourism at Holyrood began on that visit by George IV in 1822, when some of the servants at the palace realised that they could charge some of his entourage money to pay for being shown round these rooms. So interested were they in the story of poor Mary. The guidebook describing this puts it like this, quote, The gloomy spiral staircase, thick walls and heraldic ceilings, combined with details of Mary's tragic life, exerted a powerful appeal. And I think that's a pretty good description of why today it's the part of the palace that everyone most enjoys looking round. You can visit her outer chamber, the room in which she received John Knox and in which Rizzio was stabbed to death. There's even a plaque on the wall marking the spot. And in that room there are various quite poignant things to see connected to Mary herself. A piece of her embroidery, for example. little cross-stitch canvas. Apparently she did lots of embroidery when she was in captivity. And this piece is a picture of a large cat watching a little mouse. There was apparently a theory put about that maybe she chose this as an allusion to her own situation. The cat representing Queen Elizabeth and the mouse herself. Also, there's a little purse belonging to her, her pomanda, a letter to her French brother-in-law in her own handwriting. And you can visit too the bedchamber and the tiny little supper room off it, in which she was dining on the night of Rizzio's murder. If you look at the ceiling in the bedroom, you'll see carved initials, J.R. and M.R., those being the initials of Mary's parents, James and Mary. Remember, it was that James who had this part of the palace built. There's a portrait of her done by the French artist François Clouet around about 1560, so in her lifetime, painted just at the point when she was about to resume her royal role back in Scotland. It is definitely a set of rooms where you can feel quite connected to her story. There's lots more to see in the rest of the palace. I picked out just a few highlights. In the dining room, which was originally the guards' room, there is the most amazing silver banqueting service, gifted apparently to George V and Queen Mary for their silver jubilee. Every piece made in Edinburgh, every piece engraved with a Scottish coat of arms or a Scottish royal crest, but it's the list of what it contains that's so amazing. Over 3,000 pieces, and I have to read you the whole list, because it does give a picture of royal dining. OK, it includes, quote, candelabras, tureens, salvers, plates, dishes, souffle dishes, sauce boats, ladles, knives, forks, spoons, oyster forks, asparagus tongs, and, just to bring it back down to earth, teapots, milk jugs, and tea trays. So, anyone for whom tableware is their thing will certainly not be disappointed. There's a throne room, which was originally part of a processional route, so less important rooms leading through ever more important rooms until you get to the king's bedchamber. The throne room is pretty splendid. Think red carpets, wood panelling, two upholstered throne chairs with the initials GR and MR, that's George V and his Queen Mary, 
and all along one wall of the room, portraits which you might recognise of the Stuart monarchs. You often see them in history textbooks and whatnot. So above the fireplace, there's James I, and he's flanked then by Charles I and a separate portrait of his wife, Henrietta Maria, on one side, and then on the other side, two more paintings, Charles II and his wife, Catherine of Braganza. That room today is used for receptions, e.g., and I quote, luncheon for the knights and ladies of the Order of the Thistle. So in other words, when a new knight of the Thistle is installed, the celebration lunch takes place in here. Then there are a couple of drawing rooms, the morning drawing room and the evening drawing room, don't ask, followed by the culmination of the processional route, as the guidebook puts it, i.e. the king's bedchamber, which was lavishly decorated for Charles II. And next to that, his little closet room, which was a more private space to which he would withdraw if he really wanted some personal space. There's also the Great Gallery, the largest room in the palace, which connects the king's apartments to the queen's apartments. That's the one with all the portraits and where Bonnie Prince Charlie held his evening balls. Today it's used for investitures, state banquets, that sort of thing. And then lastly there are the Queen's apartments, the Queen's lobby, the Queen's antechamber. Rooms in fact where it's known that Lord Darnley used to sleep, as did Bonnie Prince Charlie, as did in fact after his defeat the man who had defeated him at Culloden, the Duke of Cumberland. And then of course there are the grounds, four hectares of loveliness, borders, there's a silver jubilee and a golden jubilee border, both created for our current queen, trees, rockeries, a place to hold the garden party with 8,000 guests every summer, but also a place to think of the past. It was monastic gardens, of course, at one stage. Presumably they grew their food there. In Mary Queen of Scots' time, there was a walled privy garden. You can imagine, too, in the grounds, jousting and archery. And best of all, as far as the grounds are concerned, there is the abbey. Begun in the 12th century, completed in 1250, destroyed, I'm afraid, by the English in the 1540s, abandoned altogether after the Reformation, refurbished for Charles I's coronation, ransacked again by Protestants at the time of the Glorious Revolution, and, to cut a long story short, from the 19th century onwards, really ruins. But very romantic ruins. There is quite a lot left. Definitely somewhere you get a sense of what it would have been like, And it might help to know that when the composer Mendelssohn went to visit, he was so taken with the beauty of it that he went home and wrote his Scottish symphony. If you go to visit, I would suggest the best thing to do is get the audio guide, because on that there is a detailed description of that wedding from 1503, James IV and Princess Margaret, or Margaret Tudor, with loads of atmospheric detail. Perhaps I should add that when Samuel Johnson went to visit on his tour of Scotland, He was very taken with the Abbey, and very put out that it had been allowed to go to ruin. He wrote of his feelings as follows, I spoke with peculiar feeling to the miserable neglect of the chapel belonging to the palace of Holyrood House, in which are deposited the remains of so many of the kings of Scotland, and many of our nobility. I said it was a disgrace to the country that it was not repaired. So, yes, that's a good place to end, because it really does seem, when you go to Holyrood, both to the palace and to the abbey, that there are links everywhere to Scottish history. From King David's founding of the abbey 900 years ago, right up to the 21st century. I think you really can say that no trip to Edinburgh 
is anywhere near complete if you haven't spent time at Hollywood. So that brings this week's episode to a close. We've now been to both ends of the Royal Mile, and next week we're going to have a look at everything in the middle. So I'd like to sign off today by thanking you for listening and saying goodbye in the Scottish Gaelic that I've been practising, which means exactly that. Thank you and goodbye. I do hope it sounds right to anyone who speaks Gaelic. And if not, feel free to email and put me right. Anyway, here goes. Tapa leave, agus marshin leave. <laughs> <laughs>